Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Neil Desai, the co-founder and CEO of Caffeine, a fintech startup that works with a network of merchants to offer buyers lease-to-own payment options. Caffeine raised a 30 million Series A last year and also secured a 75 million debt facility to enable it to scale the business. Neil, thanks for joining us. First, for listeners who may not be familiar, can you explain what lease-to-own uh, also sometimes called rent-to-own, is and how it works. Uh, maybe drawing some comparisons to how it's different uh, or similar to the very popular buy-now-pay-later financing mechanism, which has really exploded in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And first off, let me just mention, I'm super excited to be here and excited to talk about caffeine and lease-to-own generally, so happy to dive right in. So lease-to-own, for you know people who may not be familiar with the uh, structure, is an extremely flexible financing structure that creates real benefits for all participants in the transaction. If you think about how expensive things like appliances and furniture are, and then layer in the fact that there are over 100 million people in the US alone that don't qualify for traditional credit, it's easy to see that there's a real opportunity here to help both retailers and consumers make these necessary purchases. Specifically, we help consumers by extending multi-thousand dollar purchasing power to help facilitate purchases that they would otherwise not be able to afford. What's even more compelling is that our structure enables the consumers to make these purchases without incurring debt. The customer can return the item or cancel the agreement anytime without the overhang of being caught in a debt trap. Structure is flexible, it builds credit, and it's often cheaper than a credit card. Retailers also clearly benefit in that they're able to make sales that they wouldn't otherwise be able to make. In most of our partner retailers, we facilitate up to 50% of the transactions in their store without any merchant fees. BNPL, as you referenced, is pretty interesting, but to be honest, it's not really where we're headed. In my opinion, BNPL is just another form of credit. It's another form of debt where the retailer subsidizes some of the interest. There are two key points I want to make here. The first is that most consumers that use BNPL probably would be able to put that transaction on a credit card if they wanted to. They may not have one, but it's likely because they haven't applied to one. If they had, they probably would have gotten approved. The second point I want to make is that the average BNPL transaction is only about $300. Our average transaction nears $2,000. And so our offering is much more of a need than a convenience play. I mean, I think you raised a couple of really interesting points um, around the structure and use cases of the product. I mean, I, I don't know if you're familiar. I mean, I came from the world of, of small dollar lending, small dollar meaning like 200, 300 bucks. Um, and while, you know, unfortunately, there remains a really strong need for those kinds of products in the US, you know, you're not, you know, buying a new refrigerator or, you know, buying new furniture for the two or $300 that a typical, you know, small dollar lender, payday lender would use. I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of merchants you work with? You mentioned sort of $2,000 being a typical ticket size. What are, what are consumers using the lease to own mechanism uh, to, to, I guess, well, lease or eventually purchase um, that, you know, otherwise they probably wouldn't be able to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, um, you know, very uh, correctly referenced that there is a real need and a place for that, you know, two to three hundred dollar 
solution, right? And we are very intentional about not pursuing that area because it doesn't work very well with our regulatory structure and it doesn't work very well with our mission, right? We want to be the best option for that multi-thousand dollar need in categories like appliances, furniture, electronics, tire and wheel, outdoor equipment, musical instruments, um, essentially think of it as basically like big, heavy stuff that's durable, right? If it's big, heavy and durable, um, and it's something that, you know, a consumer needs, we want to be there and we want to be able to provide the financing for it. And that's really where, you know, we see the largest gap in the market. That, I mean, I think that's a really important distinction. I, um, you know, frequent readers, listeners may know that I travel to Mexico with some frequency and I actually wrote a piece after a trip to the Oaxaca region about a year ago uh, about a department store called Copal. And you know, me being the nerd I am, what I noticed when I walked in there was every item in the store, you know, stoves, microwaves, refrigerators had a cash purchase price, or you could use installment financing, you know, at a different price. Uh, and the effective APR worked out to be like 30 to 40%, which I think in the American context, you know, typically you see any number above 36 and there tends to be sort of a very visceral reaction. Um, but to your point about, you know, using this specifically for durable goods uh, and for audiences that, you know, otherwise might not have any way to finance these purchases, um, you know, it, it is a mechanism that fulfills a real need. And it's not purely for consumption. I mean, something I noticed when I worked in, frankly, not not only the small dollar space, but also the the larger unsecured consumer lending space, um, you know, at, at companies like Goldman Sachs with Marcus or, you know, Lending Club, Prosper do the same kind of loan. Most typically those were debt options that were used to finance just sort of like casual consumption. Um, whereas I think it, it is an interesting distinction to say, hey, if you're buying a refrigerator or tires for your car or an air conditioner, you know, at least that's not using BNPL for Domino's, which is a thing in the UK, right? <laughs> uh, it's okay. This is an item that you know you need, or uh, I don't know. I feel like I could use air conditioning here in the Netherlands this summer um, that you need or or want, uh, but is something that is if not literally an investment, at least a long lasting durable purchase. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think what a lot of people don't always appreciate is that with these types of items, it it's kind of a one-two punch, right? In that they need them. And then there's urgency, right? If the refrigerator breaks, if the appliance breaks, it is so much more expensive for a consumer to go three weeks without a refrigerator where they have to get takeout or order in or whatever other solution they can come up with than to be able to walk into a store and get that refrigerator today. And so, you know, the beauty of our financing structure is that if, if a customer needs the refrigerator today, they can get it. And if they want to pay it off in three weeks for what essentially amounts to no fees and no interest at all, they have the flexibility to do so. So, you know, we're here in all use cases of our offering to provide real value for that consumer where they just don't have any other choices. The the lease to own idea, you know, isn't new. I mean, companies like Rent-A-Center, Aaron's have been around for quite a while uh, and frankly, don't necessarily have the best reputation 
Um, what is it that caffeine, you know, has created or that you're doing? What is what is different? Uh, what is fintech uh, about the the product that you've created and the approach that you're taking? Yeah, if if I could piggyback on your uh, comment earlier about the store that you went to in Oaxaca, that's what Aaron's and Renta Center were a couple decades ago here, right? It's this idea that you've got a combination retailer and financing company. And that has a lot of advantages, but it has a couple of large drawbacks. The biggest drawback is that when a consumer is in the market for an item, if the only place they can obtain that item is at one of these combo retailer financing options, then they're limited to one or two or three different types of stores. And because they're limited, they don't really generally get the best quality for price. Now, the fintech if we can make up a word, um, of, of what we've done is to unbundle the financing piece from the retailing piece. So we've lifted the financing piece out of companies like Rent-A-Center and Aaron's, and we make it available for any and all retailers who want to use it. In doing so, we're facilitating, obviously, tremendous incremental sales for the existing retailers, but we're also allowing consumers to be discerning uh, price and quality shoppers. They can go shop at any store, the same stores that the rest of the um, consumer universe is able to access, and they really get the highest quality products for the money that they're spending. I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about how the economics of this works. So, I mean, my my understanding in that sort of call it classic rent to own model is that you know a lot of this is coming from charging effectively a higher price for the good than if you would pay in cash. Is that still how it works with caffeine? Is there sort of like a different uh, set of economics in play given that you've now disaggregated the sort of leasing piece from the retailer? I mean, can you expand a little bit about how sort of how the economics on this work? Yeah, sure thing. Um, the economics are, are, are fairly nuanced, but in in broad strokes, I will say that the the idea that there's a markup on the price that is obtained from a company like ours versus what the customer would pay in a store is a relatively antiquated pricing structure. Okay, that's the pricing structure that you would see in a Aaron's, you know, kind of brick and mortar location. For the vast majority, and, and I'm trying to think if it's 99% or a little bit higher, but call it in the 99% range of all of our structures, the price that a consumer would pay um, is equal to the price that they would be paying at a retailer, but for a nominal processing fee. Mm -hmm. And when I say nominal, think you know $15 order of magnitude, so quite small. Um, and what would be the most um, applicable sort of parallel would be the interest payments, given that the longer they hold it, the more those interest payments are going to accrue. But the practice of essentially marking up the actual retail price doesn't really exist at caffeine. Mm -hmm. And even with most of our competitors, that's, that's, you know, people are doing away with that. So when uh, I, I'm I'm trying to like visualize this in my uh, consumer lending brain, which I realize this is not it's not legally alone. It's not technically alone, but when when somebody is you know shopping for something and they're considering using uh, caffeine to do a lease to own process to acquire that good, let's just pretend it's a refrigerator. You know, 
what does that look like to the consumer? Are they're, they're getting a lease agreement that says you're leasing this refrigerator for 12 months. You know, the retail price is X. If you make each lease payment, like this is what you're going to pay over the life of it. And at the end of that period, congratulations, like you now own this fridge. Is that roughly what it looks like? That That's very, very close. Um, <laughs> you could actually sell the product for us if you ever decided you wanted to <laughs> get out of the, uh, get out of the game you're in right now. But yeah, it's, it's exactly that. Um, the customer sees what the price is at the retailer, right? So let's say it's a thousand dollar refrigerator. Our agreement will say you're buying a one thousand dollar refrigerator. We'll say your you know monthly payment, which is typically broken into biweeklies, actually is X. And over the life of the agreement for twelve months, if you pay you know twenty six payments of X, you own the refrigerator outright. And then we offer a tremendous number of incentives that generally have about eighty percent uptake. Okay, the incentives are. If you can buy this within 90 days, we're only going to charge you a processing fee. Again, order mm-hmm. of magnitude, $15, $15. So on the 90-day option when consumers elect, and about half our consumers elect to pay it off within 90 days, we actually lose money. We don't even cover our origination cost, credit cost, financing costs. That's just a consumer subsidy, essentially. After the 90-day mark, if the consumer is able to... Um, come up with a percentage of the remaining balance, and that percentage generally hovers around 50%, um, they also own it outright. And so what ends up happening is that so many of our consumers will exercise either the 90-day purchase option or the early payoff option between day 90 and day 360 that the 12-month price is almost never realized by anybody. And so that's when we point to the actual cost of the program, which I, we, we may touch on later, but the actual cost of the agreement to acquire ownership is nowhere near what the actual, you know, pe- people like to say, okay, well, 26 times the monthly payment, well, that's what it must cost, but almost nobody pays that. And that, I mean, I think that's, a, you know, a, a fair and important thing to point out. I mean, the idea of prepayment and, and anyone who works in lending will be familiar, you know, you might write a 30-year mortgage but your typical consumer will not carry that specific loan for 30 years. At some point, they're going to sell the house or they're going to refinance. So maybe the average life of that loan is like five, six, or seven years. I mean, the same thing is true in the unsecured uh, installment space. You know, Consumers do refinance or, or pay off early those types of loans. So uh, I think that's a very fair point that, frankly, I didn't consider that even you know, just doing the math of... 26 payments, um, you know, times the payment amount, some, I assume some percentage of customers carry it for the full life, but, you know, without seeing your book, it sounds like the majority actually end up, you know, paying, uh, substantially earlier than carrying that, that lease to term. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and to use your mortgage example, I would, um, advocate that anyone out there thinking about buying a house actually calculate what they're going to pay in interest on a 30-year mortgage, it's staggering. It's actually oftentimes multiples of the cost of the house. But as you absolutely you know, point out, almost nobody carries that mortgage 30 years, right? It's, it's Some people do. Most people refi. Most people uh, sell. And so, um, yeah, oftentimes when we think about the cost of financing, you really have to get under the hood a little bit and and, and take a deeper look at what's going on. Definitely. I mean, maybe not here in the EU where 
last well i think they've risen but uh when when i did my mortgage uh 18 months ago the interest rate was like 1.5 percent which <laughs> probably not, probably not know. anymore probably not anymore. yep um <laughs> i mean you mentioned cost and, and granted the majority it sounds like of consumers who are going to use a lease to own product like caffeine are likely doing so because they don't have you know many other options available where they would have enough line uh, enough credit to purchase a large item like tires like a refrigerator etc but to sort of put this in 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 context for folks um you know how would the sort of cost of that financing compare to more traditional uh vehicles you know like a credit card uh like point of sale financing retail financing you know, can you sort of uh, draw a continuum there and, and help us understand, maybe not for that person carrying uh, the lease to its full term, but something that is more representative of a caffeine customer. You know, how does that cost compare to if they put it on a credit card or used, you know, some other type of financing? Yeah, ha happy to go into the details there because I think they really matter. And I just want to reiterate, you know, something you said as you were asking the question, which I think is critical. It's important to understand, I'm going to draw a distinction in a second between the pricing somebody would pay on a credit card versus what they would pay if they use caffeine. But in practice, in practical reality, our consumers don't qualify for the credit card. So they don't actually have any other choice. The, 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 the apples to apples comparison would be the cost of a payday loan or something like that, which is multiples and multiples higher. That being said, I think you can broadly break our consumer base into two categories, okay? There is the category of consumer, the refrigerator, the broken refrigerator example is a good one, where they're going to be able to come up with the price of the refrigerator. They just can't do it today, right? They need a few weeks. They need to put in a few extra shifts at work. They need to, you know, maybe, you know, reach out to their friends and family, get some help to, you know, scrape, scrape together the money to, to execute the purchase. And as I mentioned, that's about 50% of our consumers. So 50% of our consumers pay what amounts to nothing to finance uh, from caffeine over 90 days. And that's clearly cheaper than a credit card, right? Because no credit card that I can think of is gonna let you pay nothing for 90 days. The other really amazing thing is that that 90 day clock for us starts when the goods are delivered. If you think about all the supply chain issues going on out there, um, oftentimes, if, you know, if there's a backlog on something a little more discretionary, like a sofa or something like that, um, the, the consumer doesn't even start making their payments and the clock doesn't start ticking for, uh, for quite a while. Whereas on a credit card, they would be accruing interest the entire way. So half our customers, clearly cheaper. The other half of our consumer base is unable to execute that uh, 90 day purchase option. And so they really do need something like six or seven months on average to be able to complete the transaction. That consumer base, if you were to look at the implied sort of total cost of financing, pays something that is also comparable to a credit card. Okay, so 50% cheaper. And then, you know, the majority of the balance is comparable. And it really is only that really thin slice of consumers that's going 10 to 12 months with our agreements that ends up paying more. So if you were, I think, in broad strokes to say, is a consumer better off using lease to own compared with credit card? The answer is surprisingly, most consumers are better off using lease to own. And what is, what is super interesting is that 
a lot of our customers we're now seeing are not non-prime consumers. A lot of mm-hmm. our customers that we're seeing are actually prime consumers who are electing to use our offering, even though they don't you know, have to, mm-hmm. because they really appreciate the benefits and the, uh, you know, the, the 90 day window, the full warrantying, the credit building, all of those benefits, which are embedded in lease to own, but not embedded in traditional credit card purchasing. Yeah, that I mean, that also uh, is a very interesting point and inconsistent with things that I would notice when I worked in the small dollar space. I mean, people, uh, you know, tend to think of payday loans as something that you know consumers who are absolutely destitute use. You know, and, and part of um, you know the roles I had when I worked in that industry was doing consumer and market research. So I mean, I literally over the course of four or five years spoke with you know a hundred plus consumers who use these products. And what you know what I would find, and this was probably the exception, not not the rule, certainly, but there were consumers who liked those kinds of products because it was almost like a off balance sheet vehicle. Like I, you know, I know that I'm going to be able to pay this back in two weeks, and so I'm going to borrow two, three, four hundred bucks, and you know, repay it on my payday and be done with it. I don't want to go ask my mom. I don't want to use a credit card that I had previously paid off. Um, yeah, so I mean that sort of behavior, I think, actually demonstrates quite a bit of savviness on the part of a consumer who maybe they have a credit card with a ten thousand dollar limit, uh, but they don't want to carry that balance, and they know they'll rack up, you know, interest charges even if they're able to repay within ninety days. Whereas, you know, it sounds like with a product like Caffeine, you know, they're able to use essentially kind of exploit that and say, hey, I can use this, you know essentially finance this over a 90 day period for, you know, if not no cost, the the nominal processing fee and ultimately get, you know, a significantly better deal than if they had used a, a traditional credit card. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really insightful point. Um, what you see with a lot of consumer credit offerings is that they start out filling a need and then they ultimately morph for some portion of the consumer base that uses them into a lifestyle play right? People use credit cards for convenience oftentimes, right? People use payday loans for um, bringing forward consumption oftentimes. They don't necessarily need it, but they end up um, using that offering to to uh, enhance their consumer activity in mm-hmm. one way or another. And what we believe quite strongly is it's okay for the portion of consumers that wants to do that with caffeine because the overall portfolio is uh, profitable. And we believe that at this stage, we're unable to discern cleanly who's using us as a lifestyle play versus who needs to use us. And so we give the benefits equally to everybody. And so we're okay just taking that small subsidy on our books. With the with the not with as we move into prime consumer base and they use the benefits of the program we believe strongly that we'll be able to monetize that, right? If 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 there's a prime consumer out there who wants to use lease to own and they want to spend $7,500 or $10,000 picking out a bedroom set because they can essentially try it and then potentially return it if they don't like it, um, that is monetizable behavior. And it's, it's behavior that we are starting to think through um, how to accurately uh, make economic for ourselves. 
Um, that actually, I think, is a great segue to uh, discussing a little bit how you actually underwrite these consumers. So again, again forgive me, I'm, I'm always going back to my like consumer credit background, but you know, whether it is the sort of prime, near prime consumer that you mentioned, where maybe in a consumer credit world, you'd be using primarily bureau data, you know, major bureau data, or you know, small dollar, there are specialty bureaus that focus on that, factor trust, clarity, data X, et cetera. What, you know, particularly for a either subprime consumer or a consumer with, with no credit history, you know, thin file, no file, how do you approach um, determining if you will approve? And if so, for what, what dollar amount? And then I guess you mentioned sort of earlier in the conversation, the ability to you know, return an item. So if a consumer is unable to make payments or, or they're encountering difficulty, you know, avoiding that debt, debt trap by being able to bring back the refrigerator, uh, I'm assuming that that plays a really key role in how you think about underwriting credit risk in, in your business. Yeah, absolutely. So we're pretty unique in this regard in that each consumer uh, we map to approximately 20,000 different data attributes across dozens of different vendors. Uh, we use some of the ones that you mentioned. We use a bunch that you did not mention. Um, as far as I know, we pull something like three times the amount of data as our next nearest competitor. And the reason we do that is because we essentially write in two steps. Okay, The first step says, and that you can accomplish with about one third of the data, can we approve this customer or not? And can we give them our standard line? Right. The rest of the data is used to see if we can find any excuse to charge them less or give them more. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so we are really trying to push the envelope in you know, what we call risk-based pricing, which is to say all customers are not created equal. Everybody should benefit from at least our standard program, but we want to be able to deliver cheaper financing to the consumers who have demonstrated through other alternative data that they are able to meet that obligation and higher line size. Um, we're, I think, pretty differentiated in the fact that we do that. As far as I know, we're the only least-owned company that does any kind of risk-based pricing. With respect to the returns, um, pretty core to our product offering and pretty core to the mission of the company is this idea that if a consumer either changes their mind or finds themselves uh, you know, in over their head in terms of their payment, uh, agreement that they can cancel and return. And so we facilitate that. We're happy to do it. And we do it at no charge to the consumer. We will work with consumers to uh, make sure that they have every other option available to them. And for example, that includes things like elongating the agreement term to drop the pricing or other types of things like that, which are essentially win-wins between us and the consumer. Um, but to the extent that a consumer wants to return, we're happy to facilitate that. How how would that work in practice? So, I mean, I suppose, and I don't know if like uh, errands or rent a center offer that similar option, but in the integrated model, you know, I got a frigid errands, like, uh, oh no, I lost my job. I'm taking it back to errands, the place I bought it from that also extended the financing here where you've disaggregated, you're the financer, financier. Um, and you're working with many merchants, you know, if whatever Best Buy sold somebody a fridge, you provided the financing. I'm assuming Best Buy does not want this like six month used refrigerator returned. 
So I, I'm wondering a little bit how that actually like practically works. Yeah, practically speaking, you're exactly right. Nobody wants to use the refrigerator, <laughs> right? And so it's pretty core to our offering that we are as flexible as we can be to prevent the refrigerator and to prevent the consumer from going into the return cycle mm -hmm. in the first place, right? Um, but that being said, look, there's always going to be some percentage of consumers who want to return. And so we end up taking the refrigerator back ourselves. We have mm -hmm. uh, partnerships with um, infrastructure and delivery companies nationally. They, you know, go out to the consumer's, uh, you know, house or apartment or residence at our cost, pick up the item at our cost. And we then have uh, a series of uh, resale and or disposal mechanisms at, at our, you know, fingertips that we can use to be able to either remonetize or just write off the good. I think it's pretty obvious that no matter which path is chosen, a return is a loss for us, right? And so it's something that we, you know, are happy to facilitate. It's mission aligned, but it's not as if um, we spend a tremendous amount of time trying to figure out how to extract maximum value out of a return to six month refrigerator. Yeah, I assume your core business is is not reselling used couches and, and used refrigerators. I mean, are you able to share sort of approximately what proportion of your customers, you know, successfully complete? their their payment you know it at any duration whether that's within that 90 days or taking it to term versus what proportion you know end up either returning the item or uh, i guess defaulting not not successfully completing repayment i don't want to be perfectly transparent here just yeah. because we have uh competitors <laughs> fair fair, fair will, enough fair enough but i will tell you that we are somewhere between 80 and 90% path to ownership yeah, and I mean, again, not not that this is directly comparable, but I mean, you can look up what uh, charge off rates are in in small dollar lenders that are public companies like Enova, where I used to work, um, and you can you know deduce some of this uh, at a neobank like Vero from looking at their call reports, and the charge off rates tend to be significantly higher than that. I mean, Vero's small dollar product saw you know something approaching a forty percent annualized charge off rate uh, in Q one of this year. Um, so, I mean, to hear something that's, you know, in, in that range that you stated, it, you know, at least on the surface from what you're telling me sounds, you know, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it will. It, it speaks to, I think, um, the nature of the types of good we're financing and the regulatory structure that we use, right? This is one of the very few examples out there of a real win-win in terms of the the benefits to all the participants. So specifically from our perspective, from a credit standpoint, our agreements function as if they're secured credit, not unsecured credit. They mm -hmm. function like secured credit because there is an asset there. And it's not about the resale value of the asset like it would be with a car. It's about the perception to the consumer that this payment is going for that thing. And I want that thing and I mm -hmm. need to keep that thing. Therefore, I better make this payment and prioritize it. Because the repayment behavior is far superior to the unsecured credit products, we can actually charge less, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice circle where, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Three hundred dollars unsecured will have forty-five percent charge-off rates, whereas two thousand dollars in our structure has significantly better credit performance. Yeah, I mean that 
that makes sense, right? I mean, if I'm thinking of a consumer's payment payment hierarchy, you know, and I'm guessing, you know, you're probably not sending repo men out to take away, you know, TVs and fridges, but just the the psychology that comes into it. Okay, I got my paycheck. You know, I'm sitting down at the kitchen table to figure out, you know, what bills what what bills I'm paying when. You know, I'm probably going to pay the bill associated with my refrigerator or the tires on on my car. And hopefully that consumer has enough money to, to pay everything they need to pay. But as we know today, uh, particularly at the lower end of the income and credit spectrum, that that's not always the case. Uh, I actually read a stat earlier today that one in six American households are uh, in some amount of delinquency on their utility bills. So, I mean, clearly, even though in aggregate, you know, economic indicators still feel kind of positive, there are absolutely households, um, you know, households that are encountering difficulty. And I would assume that's probably more common in, in your consumer base than sort of the overall, um, you know, overall American uh, average consumer. Um, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that economic climate is, is impacting, you know, your consumers, your business to the extent that you've sort of detected any trends. I mean, employment picture, still very positive, wage growth, okay, inflation growth, uh, not good, pushing up prices. Um, you know, ha- have you seen any impact in your customers, in their shopping behavior and their repayment behavior? Has it changed how you underwrite um, you know, new applicants or you know, existing customers who are coming back? Yeah, it's a great question and, and super timely. Um, we have not seen any increase in delinquency on our consumer base, but we have seen a lot of behavioral changes. And I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. So, you know, the first thing you touched on is that inflation is pretty high. And if you look at um, consumer sentiment, it's at record lows. But this is actually, in some ways, a good thing because consumer sentiment has fallen so sharply that most consumers are in defensive balance sheet mode, even Mm -hmm. though they don't need to be, they're still fully employed, right? So what you see is that savings rates are at all time highs. Consumer savings in aggregate balances are two times higher than they were in 2019. And in our demographic, it's closer to three X, okay? We're also seeing three quarters of consumers are choosing to purchase uh, a trade down or a lower cost option than they would normally have purchased a year ago. So what you have is this this greater sense of responsibility across all consumers and especially our consumer base than would have been uh, the case had inflation not been high while still being fully employed. And so that's had positive balance sheet impact, which I think has offset uh, some of the inflation cost. Second thing that we're seeing, and you can see this in you know a lot of the retailers' earnings reports, is that there is a demonstrated shift from wants to needs. You know, discretionary mm-hmm. items to non-discretionary items. We're in the non-discretionary space, and so we've seen pretty resilient demand for the product across all of our retailers. And then the final point that I want to make is, and it, and you know, it speaks to the the willingness to pay uh, that you just referenced earlier with respect to, okay, where do things live on the payment hierarchy? Our agreements for the most part are completed in about six months. Consumers are fully employed. They have six month visibility into their savings. They understand that if they complete our program, they're going to own and acquire the good outright in about six months. And so they choose to prioritize that payment. 
I think where consumers are starting to run into trouble is when they're staring at a multi-year agreement that has no flexibility built into it. And they're basically saying, strategically, I might as well default on this today, because if I don't, I've got three or four years worth of payments or longer that I've got to somehow make, and I, I don't want to extend myself. Why, why, pay, why pay the next two years just to default then? I might as well default now. And so um, it, it's been a really interesting time for us where we're seeing very strange default behavior from consumers given the strength of the employment picture. Yeah, that I mean, that is another good point um, as far as the short duration being an advantage, uh, both I assume in sort of being able to detect and correct any changes uh, needed in underwriting versus, you know, writing a three, four, five year uh, unsecured installment loan or revolving, uh, which tends to be quite difficult to to sort of begin as a new business to underwrite. So that is also a really good point and advantage to to your business, um, you know, as far as being able to be uh, a bit defensive and ahead of the curve if, if there are changes happening in consumer repayment behavior. I mean, I'm also uh, interested to see how, if and when uh, student loan payments ever resume, uh, which, you know, they're supposed to, but they continue to get deferred, how that may shake up consumers repayment behavior. I mean, as you just pointed out, you know, if you have a balance of 10, 20, 30, $40,000 and a, a sense of, I'm never going to be able to pay this back anyway. And, you know, how bad are the consequences if I stop paying? This is for something that I've already essentially consumed in the past. And in, in that case, an education credential, you can see somebody walking away from, you know, a large debt that feels insurmountable that has already essentially been expended versus, you know, an obligation to a company like yours, which is going to be much smaller, much shorter in duration, and for a tangible good that that, that person is hopefully still using. No, I, I think that's right. I think one of the key insights that I've gained in the last three years of, you know, since starting Caffeine is that consumers are well-educated and rational, right? And And it's not as if there is a irrationality or um, lack of information reaching our consumer base, they act in a way that if you were to put yourself in their shoes, you would act too, right? And when we think about how to structure our programs, that's the starting point, right? We basically assume that customers are going to do what makes the most sense, which is why we build in the flexibility. It's why we build in modification programs. It's why we build in all of these ways that we are able to work with consumers to head off what would be rational, uh, you know, rational non-payment. Um, you referenced earlier another point that I want to come back to, which is the short-term nature of our agreements means that we actually have the luxury of not tightening our credit box ahead of what may come we can wait and we can see. And so, you know, our our balance sheet is so nimble that we're never going to be caught like some of the other lenders out there with three or four or five years worth of exposure on the books that we can't do anything about. It allows us to actually expand into what has been a contracting credit gap, right? A lot of our other competitors have had to pull back because they can't, they're looking at the inflation picture. They're looking at 
you know, what might be a looming recession. They're looking at, you know, potential, you know, dark clouds on the horizon and saying, well, I better act now. And, you know, we, we have the ability to actually expand into that gap. And we have a business model that has been performing through cycles for decades. So we know that even if there are dark clouds, we'll be able to thrive. Now, one last question on, on the business model side. You know, we've seen cost of funds, which is key to any, you know, any non-bank financing business, um, you know, start to become a little bit harder to come by. Uh, you know, yield spreads are increasing, um, particularly, you know, companies like Affirm, Upstart, which I imagine are catering to, you know, an audience maybe a little bit higher on the credit spectrum, you know, than, than your typical consumer. Um, but what have you seen on the debt capital side? You know, how would a rising cost of capital impact your business model, you know, the types of consumers you're underwriting or able to lease to, um, and sort of how you see that unfolding in the future? Yeah, it's been such an interesting 12, 13 years, depending on sort of when you think all this stuff started. Um, I would say just, you know, my overarching view is that there are a lot of businesses out there that only work in a low interest rate environment, right? They're, they're situational. They are, um, you know, just financialization of a lot of other services and goods that are more tied towards actually delivering value. Um, let's, let's take, let's take BNPL for a second. BNPL is new. But the question I ask myself is would BNPL as a business model have gotten off the ground if rates were 6%? I, I honestly don't know. And so now you've got companies like a firm, uh, who have, you know, real scale and they're trying to figure out how to adapt their model, which was essentially created because of low interest rates to a normalized rate environment. And I do think they'll figure it out. I think that Upstart will figure it out also. I think there's a lot of talented people on each of those teams and I have tremendous respect for what they've done, but it's not so easy. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to have to make moves. They're going to have to adapt their models in certain ways that you know we haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. By contrast, um, our model has been around in some form or another for decades. And it's a model that... Um, you know, is resilient in the face of economic uh, contraction. And it's a model that is is priced to accommodate normalized rates. While rates have rise, you know, excuse me, while rates have risen significantly over the last uh, six months, um, they're still below long run averages. And one of the, you know, one of the benefits that we have of being in the space that we're in is that we don't have to worry about it so much. Our, our business mm-hmm. model has cost of financing, just like other input costs that we have, but it's not a fundamental lever as to why the business works or doesn't work. Awesome. Uh, Very last question. Where can people learn more about caffeine and where can people find you uh, to follow you on social media? Absolutely. We are uh, at www.caffeine.com. And we've got, you know, Instagram uh, handles and Facebook handles that are caffeine. So um, yeah, would love for any of the listeners out there to explore what we have to offer and reach out directly if they have any questions or comments. 
Fantastic. Neil, thank you so much for the time. I hope to chat again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be here and would love to be invited back if you want to continue the conversation. Thank you.